0: and thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Today, it's our great pleasure to have with us Graham Stewart. Graham is the founder and executive vice president of Fiber 52. He's also British, living currently out in the US, but that's a whole other story because he's been an incredible traveler during his career too. Graham, welcome to today's podcast.
1: Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for inviting me on the pod. It's uh, delightful to be here.
0: No, you're welcome. Can't wait. You have so much knowledge. We've just been chatting off air um, and you have you have so much knowledge of the textile industry. So um, let, let's make a start. Could you share a brief history of your career within the textile industry for us, Graham, please?
1: Yes, I apologise um, if it's not as brief as it should be, but... Um... That's because I think I'm in my 50th year this year. um, (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I began life as a dyer. Um, I studied part-time, got my degree in uh, coloration, textile coloration from Bradford University. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, from being a dyer, we were the largest dyers in in Europe uh, with 10 dye houses, uh, commissioned dyers. dyers. We'd dye anything we could. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: And that went from wool. Pretty much wool to, to cotton, to then the developing synthetic fibres, which was an interesting time in textiles. Um, I moved from there to um, a company called Dawson International, Scottish uh, company out of Edinburgh, the largest um, cashmere company in the world. Um, we branched out; uh, we had a big fabric division which I ran. Then we branched out into the US um, and bought textile companies over here. Um, we, we owned um, the biggest thermal uh, uh, base layer manufacturer in the world. We had about mm-hmm. 3,000 people in Pennsylvania. We had sportswear. We had dyeing companies, you name it. We ended up with 6,000 people here in the States. Um, then I moved to uh, the wool industry um, uh, with the largest, um, the largest trader and processor of wool in the world, Michelle out of Adelaide, Australia. Okay.
0: Um,
1: and then I moved to Hong Kong. To Novel Industries, Um, we knitted 75 million pieces of um, uh, sweaters um, per year. Uh, We also uh, spun, woolen spun, uh, 50,000 kilos, Uh, sorry, 50 million kilos, let me get it right. So we're the biggest woolen spinner in the world by a long, long way. Um, And um, we also own Tommy Hilfiger. 95% 95% of Tommy um, and so on and so forth so big textile conglomerate I then joined um, I, I then became head of Australian wool innovation the head of textiles for Australian wool innovation I should say um, which is the research and marketing arm of the Australian wool industry mm-hmm. uh, which gets paid for by a levy which is law in Australia um, we're also the administrator of the Woolmark company Uh, From there, I joined Nino Cerruti, a famous designer. um, And we had um, brands and garments and fabrics made in Italy, uh, primarily, but also in Asia as well. And I ran ran the brands and so on in in Asia, um, uh, living in Shanghai. Um, Then um, I went back to Michelle and on to... China, again, where I joined a company called Shanghai Challenge Textiles, where had 3,500 people downtown. Again, the biggest circular knitter of wool in the world. Um, and um, then founded my own brand, moved to Montana uh, in the USA. And um, my my one of my partners had 15,000 beautiful Rambouillet sheep we sheared them and built the supply chain um, through into really high quality circular knit garments, both from base layer through to heavy fleeces on the outside, which, you know, you can live in minus 30 Fahrenheit. Um, wow. That got through to the, um, uh, the US forces. Um, they needed wool, um, uh, particularly in areas where they needed to survive. Um, and that brought me into Fiber 52. Um, so I hope that didn't take longer than it should have done. Uh,
0: no, it's it. fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. You could have a whole series of podcasts with all of that history. It really is incredible. You must have seen then a massive, you know, you've literally worked through a massive increase in the amount of fibre that we both manufacture and consume over those years.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a striking difference to what was when I first began, the quality and the cost of Fabrics and textiles was much higher, yeah. Uh, and, and so we kind of valued everything that we had. Um, you know, you, you, you'd be—I uh, mean, I was typical. I'd be—I'd be lucky if I had one sweater every three or four years. Uh, you know, and a couple of pairs of trousers and one pair of shoes, and that was it. Now you can go down to H M and and kick yourself out every weekend. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's what's—that's what's happened, um, and not for the better, for sure. So. You know, we have to come back to making less and making more valuable textiles. Yeah,
0: yes. Be more circular and just keeping hold of things for longer. More of an investment, really. We kind of created a throwaway society, haven't we, for apparel?
1: We have, and I think we have to come back to value. You know, we have Mm -hmm. to value what we have and make sure that the products that we do make, do, do wear well, do last, can be. Can be recycled, which is something I'd like to talk to you about with Fiber Fifty Two, and as definitely. we get into the pod,
0: yeah, definitely, huge, huge changes ahead, um, and it's wonderful to 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 have to have you on board here actually as well, because you know, in, a, in order to make those changes, we desperately need the knowledge of conventional process in order to transpose it into um, a clean, a, a cleaner, greener environmental process. Would you agree with that? You have to be able to understand how it how it currently is done. But you know, we were speaking off air before. You know, you're talking about recipes that haven't changed for forty years.
1: Yeah, and that that's very true. And that's my life right now. In all yeah. the trials I do, and all the pr- production I do, I do side by side the traditional process. Yes. So if I dye two hundred pounds, I do two hundred in the traditional process and two hundred on the same fabric in fiber fifty two. Yep. And I can show. I can show the dyers. I can show the industry. This is what's. This is what's changed. So, like last week, I was dying in a beautiful yarn dye house here in America, in North Carolina, the largest yarn dye house in America, mm-hmm. on brand new package machines. So it's good to see the investment going in. So yep. this company has just invested twenty five million dollars in this dye house. Um, they're good enough to let me, you know, because they want to. They're a very open management. They want. They want to learn. Want to see if there's a better way of doing things. Yeah. And um, I, I dyed parallel, and uh, the results were really good, um, because the fastnesses are coming out five, five, five across the board, uh, which they didn't expect. The color was exactly the same, so we're not having to, you know, redo the recipes with the dye stuffs. But then um, my process took four and a half hours, and theirs took nine. So the guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, you just think energy, waste, all of it, all of it. Before before we move on then, let's just let's just double back a little bit. Why why in your opinion, Graeme, do we need to urgently develop and implement clean technologies for textiles, for the fibre to fabric? You know, what what are we currently doing in mass, you know, the majority of the time?
1: Yeah, um, I think we we have to change pretty quickly and I, I'm you know, I have to think about how that change is gonna come about. Okay. Um, because I get a tremendous amount of resistance around the world from mm-hmm. firecratchers because they don't want to do it. They don't want to have something new. But when they see, as I say, like for like as to what can be done, then they're interested in change. But even though I can name a number of very big processors around the world who have said, this is fabulous, this is just so great, but we're not going to adapt it because um, you know we're too busy um, we've just had a Check pandemic <laughs> yeah, and we, we're six weeks behind and we've got a big program ahead of us, you know, so back, back to square one. Um, so how do we make that change? And uh, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about Italy um, in Italy. One of the reasons we've been able to move very, very quickly is that the governments are getting involved. So legislation is coming in. Yes. So change has to happen, you know, so they've been very uh, adaptive, let's say, in wanting to make the changes because they know legislation's just round the corner, so I think that's a big part of what has to happen in making these changes within the industry.
0: I think, yeah, I think you're right. The industry is finally realizing that if they don't join, if they don't join us, join you know, with with environmental technologies, they're actually going to get left behind. Yes, because the big brands just won't buy it.
1: Correct, absolutely correct.
0: Yes, yeah, so there's a lot, lots of innovation going on there. Um, And we'll move on very quickly, actually, to start talking about fiber 52, because it's absolutely fascinating. But before we do, can we make people aware, our listeners aware then, what are the chemicals used in the preparation of our everyday fabrics? The ones that we need to be aware of and the ones that you have successfully removed?
1: Yes, very good question, Debbie. Um, So traditionally, um, as we've said for decades, um, nothing's really changed in that cotton is prepared for dye, Mm -hmm. prepare and bleach process. So cotton's got impurities in it, uh, trash as it's nicely called, um, which is mainly vegetable matter um, and little nodes that's in the cotton which are visible. So the bleaching process is there to get those out, but also the waxes, the natural waxes and so on, and paraffins inside the cotton, um, they're saponified by caustic soda. The caustic soda is also used with hydrogen peroxide bleach or other bleaches as well, which um, are not as nice as hydrogen peroxide, but caustic soda is a very heavy alkali. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I wanted to do was to get caustic soda out of the system completely and okay. replace it p- replace it with bioproducts. And that's pretty much what Fiber 52 is about in the initial stages in that we have um, we have four bioproducts which replace caustic soda and other things in the prepare for dye. And when they react naturally, we come to a a very clean dye bath. At the end of it, we don't drop the dye bath. We don't need to. We don't need to waste 10,000 liters of water. We go straight into the dyeing process without washing off, which is the traditional way to do things. And soaping off, we don't use any soap at all. It's banned in this process. And so, you know, you'd have
0: used lots of water, lots of energy, you know, you'd have generated lots of heat and incredible volumes Mm -hmm. here. I mean, these machines are huge, aren't they? You know, I don't think anybody out there who hasn't been in one of these mills would really appreciate how big the volume, how many, you know, hundreds of feet these things just keep going on and on, churning and churning and churning, thousands and thousands and thousands of meters constantly.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you're going to die 200,000 pounds a day, you've got a lot of machinery there. That's yeah. uh, a lot of energy. And, you know, that, that's a big breakthrough with Fiber 52 in that we're able to bleach um, at 58 degrees Fahrenheit, lower than normal. Um, and so there's a big saving in energy there, but, you know, also, as I've said, with water, um, but also the carbon footprint vastly reduced um, in, in that process. Um, and so, yeah, we're rolling, we're rolling fiber 52 out around the world. And, and, you know, initially I, I was engaging with manufacturers. Um, and I fairly quickly pivoted into brand because, yeah. it, you know, the brands can put pressure on for change. Um, whereas a manufacturer may not have that incentive to do that. So, very much we're engaging with brands around the world, um, who, um, are also, helping us in um, getting Fibre 52, this more sustainable process into their manufacturing chains.
0: It's so interesting. It really is, Graeme. It really is. So one of the things that we spoke about earlier as well was, you know, we spoke about, you know, the, the, the toxic chemicals, et cetera, that are being used, the incredible amount of waste, water, energy, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that you also touched on was the damage that all of these caustic materials actually do currently to cotton, and how much kinder of your process is? Could you just go over that for us, please?
1: Yes, um, I noticed, Debbie, uh, going back a few years, that um, in the dye houses where I was working, the cotton was uh, staying in the dye bath for a long time yeah. with these heavy chemicals at high temperatures. And um, I started to look at, on something called a Mullen burst tester, which is a very simple machine, but it tells you very quickly what the strength of the fabric is. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that the strength of the fabric was not there. I mean, you know, it was it was in some cases half the strength of the greyish fabric that was going into the machine. Right. With all that damage, you know, you were going from £100 per square inch break point down to £50 per square inch. Because um,
0: the toxic chemicals, they're actually breaking the structure, the cellulosic structure of the fibre themselves, so they just become very weak.
1: Correct. They break the cellulose chains, and therefore, they just, you know, the, the mm-hmm. cotton can't, can't hold together. Um, and so that was, yeah, th- that's been a big effect here. And um, as I say, we, we may talk about recycling at some point in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, but what we've got are two forks in the road in that um, a lot of manufacturers uh, love the process in the prepare for dye, but they want to do their own dye process then. So they, they do want to wash off and they do want to... You know, use more water, which mm-hmm. w- we ask them not to, but we can't always we can't always influence that. Um, but there is a performance angle to this as well. So we've worked very closely with uh, NC State University. They've got a, a lab called the TPAC Lab, which is really a, a very advanced comfort lab, possibly one of the best in the world. They developed um, they developed a, a test which shows what happens with different fibers. Um, and what we didn't know, we thought there was a cooling effect with fiber 52 because it's hydrophobic. Um, because we're not um, we're not really destroying the cotton. We're not we're leaving it in its natural state. So cotton in its natural state is quite hydrophobic. So it's not yep. taking it's not taking moisture on board.
0: Is that because you're leaving the wax, some of the wax in there, and the oils, the natural oils are not being stripped out by the chlorines?
1: That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And, and therefore, um, what we didn't realise though is that um, the cotton is absorbing moisture. So what we got was quite interesting. The um, the cotton that we produce with Fiber Fifty Two has a graph that's very similar to wool. Um, so <laughs> that's it, very it,
0: interesting, it, isn't it? Yeah.
1: So it absorbs the moisture and then releases very slowly. Okay. And Where you've got, and it's interesting to see the graphs where you've got polyester, which goes like Mount Everest and crashes because it clings to your skin uh, and becomes, you know, very cold actually at times when, you know, as you know, if you're in a workout and then you, you suddenly stop with poly, it clings to your body. You cool down very fast. You even end up shivering. Not good. Cotton itself is like a molehill, you know, very quickly saturated. And again, you've got that crash because you've got the cotton sticking to your body Fiber 52 does not adhere to your body, and that's the great thing in that you've got this big comfort factor in that it, it won't adhere to, you, to your skin, and it'll flatline on this graph for about an hour and a half where it's just absorbing moisture and releasing moisture. And so that's become of great interest to some of the big sport brands around the world. And it's a much uh,
0: more natural product, isn't it? Keeping its natural properties, I suppose, over the years of all of our heavy processing, we've actually changed the product of cotton, haven't we? If you were to roll it back to, you know, the chintzes of years and years gone by before we started, you know, these huge, huge mass-scale industrial processes that we just put all of those fibres through.
1: Yeah, and that was pretty much the advent of other fibres, you know, synthetic fibres, man-made fibres. And, you know, you might ask the question, if Fibre 52 really gets out there, and the brands do take on fiber 52 as a or, or the performance brands yep. uh, take on fiber 52, and the more sustainable brands. You may ask yourself, why do we need polyester? Yep. Uh, you know, so hopefully we can promote natural fibers and natural cotton. Um, there's a way to go, but you know, it's happening. It definitely is happening.
0: It's 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 so interesting, and I think you know one of the things you touched on earlier that we spoke about was the fact that. You don't need any new technology to do this.
1: No, it's just existing machinery. And, um, you know, quite often I see new water-saving technology, but, yeah. you know, when you have to shell out a couple of million dollars per machine, it's quite restrictive. Uh, yes, you're helping the environment by using a lower liquor ratio, less water. With, with this process, I mean, we're in countries where water is brought to the mill, where people don't have enough water to drink, you know, yes. and, and, and it's crazy that, there's millions of gallons of water being used and wasted in, in dyeing textiles and processing textiles where we can we can really cut down on that. And, you know, if we could get fiber 52 moving around the world, the savings in water would be just uh, huge. Um, and I, yeah, we'll, we'll put a figure on it one day. But, yeah, we're using the same machinery that's existed, some of this machinery that I'm dying in here in America is 35 years old. Yeah still good machines, um, don't need to be replaced. And um, you know, away we go. So, and this is one of the good things about Fibre 52 is that it can be in a die house anywhere in the world in about 30 minutes, because we can, you know, I can send an email and away you go. Um, The downside is, according to our lawyers, is that it can be transferred anywhere in the world in 30 minutes (laughs) and that's what we've got. It works both ways. Yeah, yeah, and we're spending, a great deal of money on doing that right
0: now no it's so interesting so so exciting tell me um, why are textile manufacturers why are they struggling to balance what in your view why are they struggling to balance sustainability and profitability why why aren't more people adapting you know I mean it made made the headlines here today uh, with a new report on um, climate change and how quickly we, we all have to act it's almost like you know People just completely in denial of what is actually coming if we don't make these huge switches. So, what is holding everybody back?
1: Um, I think a resistance to change. We've okay. always we've always done this the way, and you know, textiles and particularly cotton textiles is a very traditional industry. Mm-hmm. And ch- change is not easy unless you know there's some reason to change, and there is. I mean, yeah, I saw the same report today. You know, and, and global warming's upon us. Climate change is upon us, and we've got to do something about it. And I don't think change is coming until legislation arrives. And there has to be it's more legislation, forced. pretty yeah. much. I'm afraid, you know. And there are great initiatives, you know, like the United Nations uh, 2030 Initiative, where there are very clear objectives out there which we should be working towards. But unless there's legislation, that's not going to happen by 2030, you know, so it ha- it has to happen. And we see it happening. I mean, certainly in Europe, um, we see that legislation happening and to yeah. some extent here in the US also.
0: Yeah, 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 that's absolutely true. Very, very true. So tell us about Fibre 52 then. You're doing everything you can to raise the bar for, for cotton, really, and for us to start using more natural Organic fibers as well within within our supply chains. Do we have enough supply to do that? Do you think?
1: Um, how, how, oh. how can
0: we how can we grow more cotton in a more productive, environmentally friendly way so that we could you know sort of start start to close the gate on some of the synthetics that we're using that aren't very friendly?
1: Yeah, I think it's back to what we were talking about earlier in in the pod is yeah. that um, we need to use less. You know, because, for instance, organic cotton, you can't build a bigger supply chain overnight. No. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And more and more organics being used, which is great. Um, you know, so the, the practices of growing cotton uh, are really being focused upon right now. Um, but what to grow a lot more, I, I don't see it. So we've got to be, we've got to add value. We've got to have better quality product and we've got to use less yeah. But uh, that's where I see the changes coming over I the I guess next...
0: that leads perfectly into a conversation about recycling, doesn't it, Graham?
1: It does, yeah. That's a good segue, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, dear to my heart, one one of the nice things about Fibre 52 is that it leaves the cotton, in in some cases, much stronger. Um in recycling, particularly if we just stick with cotton right now, we, we know other fibres can be recycled, and you know that, that's also very important. But in cotton, what tends to happen not too far from me is that um, cotton gets recycled, but it can only be used for things like um, uh, automotive insulation. Yeah. Because the fibres are so short, you can't spin them again. What I'm hoping with Fiber 52... Yeah,
0: that's
1: 52- right. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm hoping with Fiber 52 is that we can keep that strength for recycling, and, and have another yarn, just recycle the whole product again and use it again and again. Um, that's, you know, as as we recycle, that's going to be more and more difficult, but there's a, a lot of initiative going on, for instance, with polyester and reclaiming polyester and, and um, recycling polyester and blending that with cotton, giving it further strength. Um, and that's something we're working on right now we've got a number of interested parties who realize that this is a stronger cotton and therefore let's look at the circular economy and see what we can do with it
0: to remove the polyester
1: well you can make it
0: easy to recycle
1: you can remove the polyester but in in removing the polyester you can recycle the polyester and make it uh, usable again, rather than, you know, going into um, a, a landfill or uh, into the oceans as it does and and so on. So re- having a very good quality reusable re- product is yeah. very sustainable.
0: It's much more valuable, I would have thought. And
1: valuable, yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: definitely, because, you know, that moves again onto our, our next question really about the performance qualities that advance the circular economy, because we're so used to, just smashing things up, aren't we, with, um, with a throwaway culture, really, that to, to, to move back all the way down, right through the supply chain and to strengthen those quality ingredients so that they last longer in the circular chain must, must, must be a huge benefit of your technology, Graham.
1: It is, yeah. And um, we would, funny you should mention that. I was talking to some guys in Central America before this pod this morning and they were saying how many thousands of tons they use in clippings on the floor. Yes. But those clippings have to be cleaned up and they go through a bleaching process. So the guy had a eureka moment and said, so we could use fiber 52 for this. And he said, yeah, no, no problem. Um, and so, you know, things are happening as we speak uh, because that in itself is an enormous industry where we can make a difference by, yeah, using those clippings, which are usually thrown in landfill, but we can use them to produce more valuable clothing. And with a sustainable process, we're not putting the heavy bleach back onto those clippings.
0: And I guess, you know, if your process is you're using existing equipment that's out there in the textile industry globally, then the application for your technology, um, your, your recipes, I guess, can be implemented anywhere in the world as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, uh, implementation anywhere, as you say. I mean, all we ask for is an NDA.
0: Yep.
1: Um, and um, and therefore, once we've got an NDA, we can do the trials. We do the side-by-side trials I mentioned. Everybody's happy, and away we go. So it can be rolled out very, very quickly around the world, no question.
0: So how do you plan to scale, Graham? <laughs>
1: What's next? Um, Well, scaling is happening right now in that we're we're dealing in the textile center, most of the textile centers around the world, not all. Um, And so pretty much we're um, making sure that we, and this is a really important question actually, and thanks for that, is that what we're doing, Debbie, is trying to make sure we can produce the bioproducts for Fiber 52 more or less on site. So, you know, if we're in Central America, South America, uh, Middle East um, uh, and the Far East, we need that supply there. And fortunately, these bioproducts are available all around the world. Um, There's some slight modifications because we take some of these products come with um, additions. We take those out. So we've got pretty much the, the pure product. Um, and um, th- these common products can be um, can be made available around the world one it makes them more readily available but two it more cost effective
0: absolutely uh,
1: and we're not shipping them around the world we don't want to do that and so no. very very quickly we've said we're not going to do that so in some countries they're like please ship us you know a thousand pounds of your product and we've said no we're not going to do that
0: so, would so, you would you be looking for for people to work with under kind of a, like a license agreement? Is that how you think it could scale fast?
1: Uh, yeah, we, we we've looked at license agreements, but we're looking at a more holistic repro- approach. In okay. that we'll, we'll work with the um, with the manufacturers of of or the the um, the people that supply the bioproduct yep. and put packages together which are affordable for the mills,
0: Great. Um,
1: and therefore also take some of the brain work out of it. In that the more simple we make this process, the better it's going to be. Um, so we'll probably, um, you know, get some return out of partnerships around the world um, rather than just charging a license, which is really hard. Hard to manage. Impossible yeah, to
0: manage. Yeah. It's hard to
1: track. Yeah, it's pretty impossible to track, to be honest. Yeah. That said, we are looking out for counterfeit already. We, um, we have a blockchain process that will be with us fairly soon. Great. Um, and so we'll be able to tell you that that really is fiber 52 and not somebody yeah. who's putting the label on yeah. it. That's fantastic.
0: Same. But, you know, we spoke off there earlier, don't transparency and traceability is not new to you, is it? You know, you talked to me about the um, the sheep that you used to farm, et cetera. You know, you've been trying to be transparent in the supply chain for a very, very, very long time, haven't you? That was an early indicator
1: yeah, Debbie. Um, I've, I've I've tried my best. It's of great interest to me and mm-hmm. dear to my heart. And yeah, we um, we had fifteen thousand ramble sheep in in Montana. Um, we didn't know them all by name, but you know we could um, we could shear the sheep ourselves. Yes, um, and um, that would yield us about sixty thousand pounds of wool. And um, yeah, I, I literally bird dogged that through um, through the whole supply chain. Um, I would be there at every stage of process and of course you had to be because there was no supply chain
0: no. Um,
1: and you know so it's great actually to be involved in something where there is a supply chain yeah. where we, yeah. we, we can, you know we can get into um, some scale let's say it's fantastic and, it
0: must be very rewarding grave as well to be able to put a lifetime's experience to great use like that as well with something that you are so passionate about
1: yeah, I mean, in my stage of career, usually taking a backseat by now, and um, I, I'm, I'm the opposite end of the scale. Um can do that. With-
0: Everybody needs your knowledge.
1: Exactly. Well, I, I hope so. But, um, I mean, look, it's, a, it's an issue in the textile industry that knowledge is disappearing.
0: Yes.
1: Um, you know, we see it here in the States. Thank goodness for the likes of um, NC State University, where there are, I think there are 20,000 students studying textiles right now. Um, you know, so that is one of the biggest learning centres in the world. We've still got wonderful um, operations like the Society of Dyes and Colours, which yes. I'm thankful for for my career. Yes, uh, and um, you know, so yeah, education needs to be um, needs to take some focus. And you know, I, I was lucky in that when I started work, there were apprenticeships. Yes, so I didn't have to go. You know, and to university full-time I could I could I could study at night and and um maybe take some time off during the week to study uh and then put it all back into practice again which Mm -hmm. is really important um and I just hope that more and more of that begins to happen
0: I think it
1: is I think it is happening actually
0: yeah I, I, yeah, I think it is too. We need a lot more of it, but it is it is gradually increasing. It's accelerating, should we say, you know, because you can't be sustainable in a silo, can you? We all have to collaborate and be more transparent um, and just collectively share knowledge wherever we can, really.
1: Yeah, you're spot on.
0: Graeme, it's been so interesting talking to you. I'm sure we could chat for hours on these subjects, and I'm sure we'll chat again very, very soon. Is there anything you'd like to add before we close the podcast for today?
1: Um, excuse me. No, um, basically, I think it's, uh, you know, for consumers to um, to, to try and um, demand more, um, yes. demand more information um, that will help the brands give more information. Um, it'll be um, a focus for brands. Then let, let's face it, they all depend upon consumers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and we as consumers need to ask for more information and more information needs to be given so we can look at how our textiles, whether it be apparel, whether it be the home furnishings that we all use, whether it be the towel you dry yourself with, we need to know where that's come from and how it's being processed.
0: We do, don't we? And, you know, you need to think back to what was that, what's actually still in it, you know, because, you know, we, we touched on all the chemicals, et cetera, that are currently used in the preparation of fabrics. Um, um but you know, in the fashion industry, so many, so often, you know, nobody washes those before they wear them, and so all of the, all of that all of that chemical structure is still in there, right towards the end. I think one of the things I forgot to mention, actually, uh, which we have touched on, is that you have done some print trials on your fabrics as well, haven't you? And they print beautifully using the digital process, which is very, very encouraging.
1: Yes, and as you've as you you've seen, um, Debbie, the, the prints were tremendous in digital um the best results we got were a digital print and um yeah uh, and again you know people are very skeptical in that okay you're leaving the cotton in its natural state is the print going to adhere and uh, we can safely say it does yes
0: yeah definitely especially with pigments as well really because that's going to sit on the top and all kind of starts to build that agenda doesn't it for you know what is the perfect product And surely the perfect product is something that's built using technologies that add that strength to the supply chain in a circular format, and so they last longer. um, And that might not be longer, you know, in the wardrobe, perhaps, if people don't want to change the buying behaviour there. But if those fibres can be used over and over and over again, then that's going to make a huge, huge impact um, for the
1: environment. It certainly is. It's, It's a good point, Debbie. And I think also, you know, To your point earlier, we were talking about printing and the effect of printing, in that you can have a more individual product rather than somebody buying 40,000 yards of pink and hoping it sells. Yep. Um, That is one of the. On demand. Yeah, absolutely. On demand.
0: Definitely. Yeah. So we all need to demand more of on demand. (laughs) Absolutely. Brilliant. Graham, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. And do keep in touch.
1: Uh, yes it's been a pleasure I will thank you
0: and we'll make sure we share all the contact your contact details and how to get in touch with you in our show notes thank you so much thank you
1: thanks Debbie goodbye
0: bye bye